This is The Thomas Guide, your roadmap for navigating the world. With your guide, John Thomas, political savant, world-class analyst, and culture critic. No need to Google directions. Just buckle up and enjoy the ride. This is The Thomas Guide with your host, John Thomas. Welcome back to this week's episode of The Thomas Guide. I'm John Thomas, your host. And we've got a lot planned for this uh, this episode of the show. Let's go through a couple of things we're going to go through. First, Joe Biden is caught red-handed plagiarizing again. Yes, again. Booker and Warren are making massive bets on Iowa, but will it work? Elizabeth Warren is on the rise in the latest polling. She's even breaking double digits. Could she be the one to win the primary? And the latest LA County homeless numbers are in. And holy cow, you're not going to believe what they say. All that and more on this episode of The Thomas Guide. So Joe Biden just released his climate uh, climate change plan, and he rolled it out. It was the first substantive plan that he released on anything in this campaign. And, uh, and he's actually avoided any specifics in this campaign uh, simply saying that the information is so detailed it would bore you. I don't want to get into that, which is a convenient scapegoat because he didn't have a plan and he can't articulate uh, policy nuances. And also when you talk about things other than I want to create jobs and I want to save the planet, when you talk in things other than broad generalities, people can nail you on specifics for either taking a position one way or the other excluding certain things, not understanding facts. That's how you get caught in gaffes or that's how you get into rooms and piss people off. Uh, if you take specific positions and it takes a more skilled candidate to be able to nuance that and be able to persuade people, even who may disagree with you back to your side of the argument, Biden largely doesn't have that ability. And, uh, and he hasn't had to because he's been so far ahead leading in the polls, but he rolled out his climate plan, which next to, Trump beating Trump guns. Uh, the issue of climate change is a top three issue in democratic politics in primaries. So if he didn't roll out some kind of plan, he would get nailed for not speaking to where the voters are at. So he rolls a plan out. There's one problem. It turns out, uh, that folks at the daily caller started out, uh, and it, it turns out that his climate plan appears to have used, identical language from other sources in at least five different passages. Uh, and when it says nearly identical language, it means identical, identically the same exact language uh, that other places have used. Um, I mean, I'm not going to bore you with the quotes, but there are now it appears to at least five different sources where he's verbatim got caught red-handed plagiarizing. Now, here's the reason this is a big deal. Number one, don't plagiarize. That's just a bad thing to do. But the the reason it's a problem for Biden is Biden, when he, he's, remember, he's run for president twice before. Uh, been an embarrassment each time, and he's had to drop out before even making it to the finish line. But in Biden's first campaign for president in 1988, it was derailed after he was caught plagiarizing on multiple occasions. He plagiarized uh, papers in college. He plagiarized speeches. Essentially, after the he's such a plagiarizer, he had to drop out. That was in 1988. And now essentially the first document that he rolls out, it turns that he's plagiarized 
five significant passages in that script, which is a major soft spot, especially for a campaign that's imploded before for lying and, uh, and well, not lying, uh, plagiarizing. So, of course, this is a big deal. I think it's going to be seized upon by candidates like Elizabeth Warren, who she is, uh, she is owning the lane as the ideas candidate. Quote, you know, she her slogan is she's got a plan for that. Uh, so she can seize on that saying, you know, Joe, stop copying other people. Why don't you come up with an original idea? And by the way, have some integrity and not copy other people's work. Or if you do, at least give them credit. So, of course, the Biden campaign wouldn't respond to the Daily Caller. But they did respond to uh, Business Insider magazine and uh, and the Biden campaign said that they missing they were missing citations that were, quote, inadvertently excluded, <laughs> quote, several several citations were inadvertently left out of the final version of the 22 page document. As soon as we were made aware of it, we updated to include the proper citations, said the Biden campaign. Yeah, what you're saying is once you got caught, you updated it. <laughs> it's like, well, okay, if the Daily Caller find found five passages that were ripped off from other places, what other things is Biden ripping off? And this actually may be a significant, I don't think fatal, but significant controversy that may dog Biden for the next several weeks. And this is that drip, drip, drip of the, it's like a death by a thousand cuts that will eventually lead to Biden imploding. I've said it on this show before a dozen times. I'm going to say it again. I don't think Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. He feels very jebby, a very Jeb Bushy of 2016, where you start out on top, you've got all the money, you've got all the name ID, but there's no there there. And he's just not in line with the Democratic electorate. And he's a he's a fatally flawed candidate on so many uh, items, except for it looks like he might be able to beat Trump. But once you look under the hood a little bit. I don't even think he can beat Trump. So this is the beginning of the end, and we're going to cover it, not only just because I like to say I told you so, but it's really entertaining to see how these campaigns make these mistakes. I mean, ripping off sources in your first document that you release when your candidate has a problem in the past that he's gotten in trouble for for plagiarism? Can't fix stupid, I guess. Okay. Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren are making huge bets on Iowa. In fact, they're almost all in on Iowa. What they're doing is investing almost all of their money on field staff and on almost all of their time in Iowa. Uh, Cory Booker, for instance, is doing, I think he's done over 11 events in just the last four days through Iowa, 11 events. That's quite a few. And he's filling these rooms with sometimes it's 10 people. Sometimes it's a hundred people. It just depends on the room and he's going all in. And what he's doing actually is quite smart. He's, he's making a gamble that Corey, his greatest strength is being a retail politician. It is the hand to hand combat of talking with voters one-on-one and winning them one-on-one to put this in perspective. There are going to be about, in Iowa, there are going to be about 200,000 Democratic voters in the primary. 200,000. What Booker is basically gambling is that he, with so many candidates in the field as we go into Iowa, I don't think we're going to have 21 Democrats. I think some are going to drop before we get to Iowa, but, but I think there will be more than 15. 
each the the winning candidate or the top three candidates could very well win Iowa with north of twelve percent of the vote, maybe fifteen percent of the vote. Now the the winner is probably cracks twenty percent. By my math, that could really be twenty to thirty thousand voters. Excuse me, no, uh, forty thousand voters that could determine who comes in top three in Iowa. And if you come in top three, you can spin big momentum and then pick up in New Hampshire and then take care of South Carolina, et cetera, et cetera. So what they're doing, Booker is basically saying, yeah, I'm not going to win this race on cable television. I'm not going to win it in the air wars because as the campaign cycle heats up, there are so many TV ads that it all blends together. Everybody's got to look good. But what's going to make the difference is if I visited your living room and I've shaken your hand, and I've kissed your baby, and I've talked about the struggles that you go through on a daily basis, a one-on-one. The fact that you know me by name, that's going to make the difference. And you know what? That's not wrong. If you look at past cycles, Mike Huckabee did extraordinarily well in Iowa. He didn't have the money, but he did have the ground organization. He was a great retail politician. Look at what Ted Cruz did. Ted didn't have, I mean, he had money, but he wasn't the leading candidate. But he did great in Iowa because he just organized the hell out of it. And that's what Cory Booker and Elizabeth Warren are doing. And so what they do and they go they set up just a ton of events and they're set and they're spending most of their time in Iowa right now. Um and they give a speech, they try to hit all the bullet points, then they hand out these things called commit to caucus cards, which are essentially pledge cards that saying, I pledge, not binding, but I pledge to caucus or vote for. Cory Booker, in this sense. And then what he does is his staff collect those cards. Then he goes outside and he thanks everybody and he takes, you know, selfies with all of them and uh, answers some more questions and hangs out. But essentially what happens is Booker has 42 full-time Iowa staffers. That's way more than almost any other campaign other than Warren who has 50 staffers. Um, And Booker has a of those staffers, which are mostly all field organizers, he has an in-state digital data team. Uh, and the reason that's very interesting that he chose to put a digital director inside Iowa is that part of the secret to putting together a great ground game in a state like Iowa is to get people signed up, engaged, and continue to be engaged. And so you get the sign up, the point of contact in the room when they meet Corey or take a selfie. You get them to sign a card or a sign up sheet or something like that. Then you immediately, uh, what happens is within less than 24 hours, uh, the campaign staff will call thanking you if you signed a pledge card saying, thanks so much for signing. Corey really appreciates it. Together we can make a difference, blah, blah, blah. Um, And then uh, you thank them and then you say, when can we sign you up to volunteer? And then on using digital, you harass them basically. You you continually engage them. You never let your supporters uh, feel like they're not connected to the campaign. It's not just one way pushing information to them. It's asking them to fill out surveys, asking them to, uh, Elizabeth Warren is doing something which was really interesting. Uh, While she's canvassing hard as well, when she's not there in Iowa, her field team are trying to keep her people engaged, uh, volunteers engaged by hosting events like book clubs, 
policy conversations, and even road races, uh, anything to keep these people engaged. Because if they feel like they have a personal connection to the candidate and the campaign, they're likely to turn out. Now, so that very well could make the difference. And if Booker has a great night in Iowa or Warren has a great night in Iowa, even if they win Iowa, the press attention can catapult them to actually win the nomination. Uh, it's, it's actually a smart strategy. The problem is I talked about last week on our podcast is the DNC just changed the rules for the third debate, the third televised debate, which is they double the amount of small donors that a candidate has to have to qualify. I think it's over 130,000 small donors. The problem is that's fine for candidates that have been investing in list building for years. I mean, years like Kamala Harris. It's fine if you're a national name like Joe Biden or if you're the, lacent, the, the most recent phenom like Buttigieg. But not if you're a lesser person. Not It's fine if you're Sanders, but it's not if you're Cory Booker. And so now the problem Cory Booker's having is I'm sure he was raising money. He's probably put a couple million dollars in the bank. But he's putting all of that into field staff, which I think is the right plan for him. But the problem is now if Cory invests all he wants in field staff, but he's not on the debate stage, he'll disappear into obscurity and it'll cause his fundraising to dry up and he'll be out of the national conversation, which then eventually he won't even be able to pay for TV ads. He won't be able to pay those staff. So the problem is he's got to allocate now disproportionate amount of money to digital fundraising. And we talked about this in depth last week, but essentially to put it in perspective, to, to get a $1 donor on a typical campaign that I run costs me a dollar and 12 cents per new donor. Candidates in this heated environment, just in general for the presidential cycle, were paying upwards of $25 a donor. Now, because all the all the candidates need so many donors, it's just a supply and demand thing. So they're paying upwards of $75 per $1 donor. It doesn't make any mathematical sense from a money-raising standpoint. It is a loss, but the candidates have to do it because if they don't collect the number of donors, they don't qualify for the debates. So... Corey is now having a complete suck and drain on his war chest. It'll be interesting to see if he can con continue to pay for those staffers because these people are not working for free. And volunteers are wonderful, but without paid organizers, it's useless. It will never come together. Uh, so Sanders is doing something different. Uh, he relies more on big rallies as he did last time in 2016 but he's taking more of a local approach, although he doesn't do a lot of one-on-one -on -one stuff, but he's doing more of that than he did last cycle. But what Sanders is saying is that they've built up a machine that they had left over from 2016 that's not only relying on traditional a traditional field program, but it's really on digital organizing. Sanders is saying he has over 25,000 volunteers in the state of Iowa ready and engaged. Now, I have a feeling like that's that's somewhat of a puffery, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had 15 or 20,000. And and look, that's halfway to the goal line. If he can continue to engage and hold those people in and turn them out, uh, that's a great base to start with. Uh, and the question is, are these Sanders, the Bernie bros, are they with Bernie to the end or were they just with him because he wasn't Hillary? We're going to find out. As time goes on and polling will tell us a little bit more about this, but it's an interesting strategy shift and it's not, you can't, the beautiful thing about campaigns is you can't say, 
oh, well, field organizing is what may work for Booker. Therefore, all candidates and all campaigns need to just do heavy field organizing. That's not necessarily true. That's not necessarily the right way to win. Even in this race for president, you have to look at each camp. You have to look at the race in its totality. You have to look at who's running. You have to look at, uh, then you have to look at your candidate's strengths and weaknesses. In Joe Biden's case, I don't think I would, even if he doesn't win Iowa, um, people are going to go, well, it's because he wasn't there. He didn't retail politics, blah, blah, blah. Maybe that's the case. But the problem is Biden's not a good retail politician at that level. He's a gaffe machine. He's good at name ID. He's good at reading off a teleprompter. And he's good at back room, back smoke filled room donor dinners, slapping people on the back. Like that's what he's good at. So you've got to play to your candidate's strengths. And so what may work for Booker doesn't necessarily work for Biden, doesn't necessarily work for Kamala Harris. She's not that great of a retail politician. She's better behind a podium. So that's what's so fun about this process is it's not a one size fits all. And a good strategist understands all of the potential tools that you could do. And then you grab data, you interpret the data, you look at the environment, you look at your campaign, and then you try to make decisions and hope it works. Uh, that's It's a fun process that takes shape. And I'm, I just can't wait to watch how each of the campaigns evolve in this in this process and see if their gambles work. You may remember, remember Giuliani, uh, when he ran for president, his strategy team did a Florida or bust strategy. They literally ignored all the states and figured they would make a comeback in Florida. That whole thing just massively backfired. But look, they were in a strategy room and they convinced themselves that that was the winning strategy. It was wrong. But uh, anyway, it's just fun to see this because we're also assuming campaigns are rational actors. There are a lot of idiots. There are a lot of ego, cape-swirling consultants that are just, you know, the most, the loudest voice in the room that says, we're going to put it all in TV ads because I say so. And that may not be the right thing to do, or maybe it is. Uh, and so campaigns aren't always rational actors. That's what's part of it is so, so fun. Um, so we're seeing an, an interesting trend here, which is a poll just came out today. Uh, the morning consult poll uh, that shows that Elizabeth Warren has finally broken into double digits in a national poll. She's gone from, she's at 10%. Uh, she's gone from nine to 10%. Now that's not a big, it is a big deal, but it's not a big deal. First, the, the poll's margin of error is claims to be 1%. So it's within the margin. So technically she could have gone down a point, but um, let's just, there's a couple things. First of all, uh, Sanders fell a point. So one could say that as Warren is growing, she's pulling from Sanders' ultra-progressive base. That's possible. Um, the other is, I said this on the on the show before, is that Warren is playing the long game. She's not going to make headlines. She is giving loads of stump speeches. She's doing the door-to-door -door in Iowa, and she is trying to win the ideas primary. She is trying to basically say, I'm the most liberal, I'm the most progressive socialist, but I'm packaged in an aw shucks way and I'm a woman. And that's powerful, especially being a female in the Democratic primary. She's hoping to both tap the intensity of the extreme left, which is most of the Democratic uh, 
the intensity of the base and the fact that she's gambling that they want a woman as their nominee. I talked about this last week. Pew did a great study that basically said if all things were even, which they never are, but if things were even, you didn't know any of the candidates' names, the Democratic primary electorate is looking for a female, uh, a female of color as their nominee. That's what they're looking for. Uh, and so <laughs> Warren is not of color. Uh, in fact, she got busted for abusing her made up heritage for her own game, but she seems to have gotten past that, at least in the primary. Now that may come back. Her opponents may remind us all as we get forward, but she's playing the long game and she's growing. Um, we'll keep a close eye on this. I get asked by consultant friends, by media almost every day, who's going to win? Who's going to win? I don't definitively know the answer to this, but I'm there are a couple things I'm watching still. One, I don't think Joe Biden is going to win this, despite him having a massive name ID and polling advantage today. I just don't think he ends up winning at the end of the day. Um, could be wrong, but I don't think so. I'm watching Sanders closely. I really think that because he's got these Bernie bros that are just with him till the end, that if he can figure out how to grow a few few points or there, and as Biden implodes beneath him and all of the other lesser candidates scrum amongst themselves, I can see Sanders coming in the top two or three in Iowa, dominating New Hampshire, um, and just picking up big momentum. I can see it. It's almost very Trumpian in the sense that everybody said, well, Trump's going to can't make go the distance because he's, he has a base that'll be with him no matter what. Uh, but they're going to, you know, he's only hovering in the mid twenties. He's got to get to the high thirties, low forties to be a viable national candidate. And that was wrong, uh, in a multi-fractured field when there's lots of candidates. And this is much bigger than the 2016 presidential primary. In fact, this is the biggest primary field we've ever seen in history. Um, I could see a candidate who's hovering in the mid twenties, making it Sanders is at Depending on the survey, he's at 18 to 22 right now. He just got to grow a couple points. That's it. That's all he's got to do. And he's going to have the money to potentially do it. And then Warren is the other dark horse to, for the reasons we just talked about that the electorate, I think, is looking for a female, but they may just not have found found her. And as other people get attacked for being in front runner place or just as things settle out, Warren's also somebody I'm really interested in. And then the last person I'm following most closely is Kamala Harris. I think she is the uh, she is the dark horse in this in this race. I essentially she's playing fundamentally on her identity that the elector is looking for a black female Democrat, which they are, by the way. But that eventually, when the TV ads start rolling, that her voter coalition will come home. That right now she's not capturing. She's only capturing, I think, like 13% of the African-American vote, and she's hoping she can get to 50% because they'll just naturally come to her. Maybe. I think a lot of things have to happen for her to get there, but maybe. So those are the candidates I'm watching. Lastly, today, I want to talk about the latest L.A. County homeless numbers. I know we talk about national politics all the time, but this is political. It is the number one issue of concern statewide in California, the 2020 presidential candidates are going to need to talk about it. 
And uh, we see it here all over in our campaigns all over the state that we're, we're running both locally, statewide, uh, and even federally. And that is uh, homelessness. So LA County just gave a pr- presentation to the Board of Supervisors today. They gave their annual report where they count how many homeless they have. And the numbers that came in are, are fairly shocking. Homelessness has skyrocketed 12% over last year in L.A. County and 16% in the city of L.A. County officials are, quote, stunned. This is essentially a hard reality check for the fact that L.A. County voters passed a multi-billion dollar tax a year or so ago, um, and I think it was Measure H, that was going to end homelessness. And that money has been spent. I mean, it's or it's being spent in a serious way. And it didn't even make a dent in the homelessness problem. And in fact, the homelessness problem has gotten even worse. The, the, just to put it in perspective, the number of homeless people are just shy of 59,000 people countywide that they were able to count. Within the city of Los Angeles, that number soared to more than 36,000 homeless people. And that's just who they counted. That doesn't mean they've counted every person. Just to put it in perspective, there are the the increase. Um, well, actually, no, not the increase. The number of homelessness countywide is bigger than the city of Arcadia, which is a. I mean, it's a serious city. The city of Arcadia has about fifty-eight thousand people. There's fifty-nine thousand of them countywide. I mean, this is a ma- this is a massive problem. Um. So the problem you've got, well, there's a bunch of issues here. First, the county and the city are spending at unprecedented levels to solve, to quote, solve the situation, but it hasn't worked. So the question is throwing money in it is probably not the answer here. The county claims that they've housed some 20,000 people since that Measure H tax has passed. So if they've housed 20,000 people, that means 20,000 people are not homeless anymore. Yet the increase over last year has jumped 12 and 16%, 12% in the county, 16% in the city. Imagine if they hadn't, I mean, it's, it's just, money is not the solution. More people are becoming homelessness, outpacing anything that the city or county can do. Um, in fact, it's gotten so bad that politically speaking, the board of supervisors have changed their rhetoric. They're not any longer. They talked in terms of, quote, ending homelessness. Now they are just saying this is a crisis. It's beyond our control and we're going to try to uh, get it under control. But they've they've even rejected trying to end it because even they know what they're doing uh, isn't isn't effective. There's a couple interesting statistics here I want to draw your attention to. First, there are nearly 3,000, there are 3,000 homeless vets in in the county, Uh, but they didn't really see a noticeable change in the number of them from last year. So that's a good thing that these, a lot of these homeless people are not homeless vets. All of our hearts break for those kind of people. Families experiencing homelessness grew by 8% with nearly 8,000 families um, 
being being homeless. But the largest increase that the county and the city saw were among people 18 to 24 years old. Uh, 24% um, was was the jump. Uh, they also saw a 17% spike in the chronically homeless. And their definition of that is people who have been homeless for more than a year. So 17% of people are just flat out on the street. It's not like they were living in their car for a couple months and then they got a home. No, they've been homeless and remain homeless. Growth of homelessness in L.A. County is also uneven. This is interesting. The west side, so that's Santa Monica, Brentwood, uh, the Pico area, uh, experienced the largest increase of homelessness at 19%. That is massive, especially for such affluent areas as Santa Monica and Brentwood. San Gabriel Valley was close behind with 17% increase. Um, the only bright spot that we saw was the city of Pasadena, um, where Pasadena saw a 20% drop in homelessness. We don't know why. I would imagine it had to do with tougher policing. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get into that. But those are some of the interesting statistics. So let's talk briefly about what can be done. The counties and the city's solutions are not working. Their solutions is to make it easier, quite frankly, to be homelessness. Don't penalize the homelessness. We just saw this week, coincidentally, the city of uh, the city council in Los Angeles passed a rule that says that the LAPD can no longer um, confiscate personal property from homeless people in the city of LA. That that homeless people are allowed to have as much personal property on the street as they want. The problem with this is that we have typhus, we have a rat infestation, and a lot of that stems from the personal property of homeless people that they dump their foodstuffs. They have these, I mean, if you've been down to Skid Row in Los Angeles, I really encourage you to drive through it. It is uh, miles long. And this is just the epicenter. It's all over Los Angeles in every community, but it is the amount of trash and personal belongings that these homeless people have is unbelievable. It's not a shopping cart of stuff. We're talking like tents on tents on tents. It's unbelievable how much stuff they have. And what they did in Orange County, for instance, to clean up the Santa Ana Riverbed, which I'm proud of some of my clients that were able to do this, it the riverbed became, there were thousands of people living, camping on the riverbed. And so it became a public health situation. But more importantly than that, it became a crime situation that on the riverbed is a jogging path that many uh, people from Orange County and Santa Ana go jogging and bicycling through. And it had become crime infested with gangs and drug users. And so the county decided to do something about it. What did they do? They told that they instructed the sheriff's department to literally clean up, give everybody, it was like a week or so to evacuate, to take their stuff and get the hell out of there. And anything that's left behind, the county will bulldoze and throw away. And they did. And they said, by the way, you can't come back. And they cleaned up the riverbed, and it's been clean ever since. Now, Orange County still has a homeless problem, but that area has been cleaned up because they had a zero-tolerance policy. In L.A. City, what they're doing is they're just making it easier to be homeless. And they're going, well, if we just build housing for everybody, no one will be homeless. Well, first of all, that's insane to build housing for 59,000 people 
that's only growing. And I, I suspect that's an undercount number. So you're going to create these massive government projects and you're going to get them suckling at the government teat and never get off. They will never not be homeless or need government assistance. So it's just a bad long-term solution. I don't think it cleans it up. Obviously, you've got mental health challenges with a lot of these people. But the this problem, <laughs> a friend of mine, Ethan Behrman, he's a former talk radio show host here in, in, in LA and San Francisco. And he tweeted today that the state of California needs to call this a, 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 a federal, a state crisis, a, an emergency, and demand that the feds come in and get involved and give us more money. That's not the problem. This is a self-inflicted problem, and it really is a result of what we're seeing in polling statewide, which is costs of housing for young families and living costs are so extraordinarily high that you can't there are a lot of families and individuals that simply can't earn enough to afford to rent a home or an apartment in LA. And so what are their choices? Well, they could go move to San Bernardino or Rancho Cucamonga if they could even afford that. But the job that they're trying to chase or their family or wherever it is, is here in LA County. So they can't commute because they can't afford the dollars to commute. Uh, it is a, uh, terrible, um, crisis that is inflicted number one by the fact that the the regulatory burden on housing developers is so extreme and let me pick this apart for just a second your standard project because of this thing called CEQA which uh, to geek out is essentially an environmental standard um, that is so burden uh, burdensome that it stretches your average real estate development project in the state of California from start to finish between five to 10 years. And so what does that do? That ups the carrying costs and it ups the risk. So out of the gate, any product that you build, whether it's housing or commercial, is going to be more expensive than in neighboring states just because they have to endure this expensive legal process uh, all for so many years. So that's number one. Number two, the regulatory burden of planning, of solar compliance, of union labor, I mean, you name it, um, drives up the cost of single-family homes. Do you know that the same, the identical single-family home in Arizona, Nevada, or Texas costs $500,000 less than in the state of California? The same materials in the identical home. Why is that? That is strictly regulatory burden. $500,000 more. And then you add that there's a there's a shortage of housing. Not only do the the housing that we have is more expensive, but there's a massive shortage of housing. In fact, LA County uh, did an analysis. I don't know if this is 100% right, but I think it's more right than not. That LA County needs almost 517,000 more uni- units of affordable renting housing to meet the demand. 517,000 units. And that a renter on average would need to make $47.52 an hour which is more than triple the minimum wage to pay the medium monthly rent of $2,400 a month. So that's the problem right there is that there's not enough housing because uh, it's risky and there's a, it just takes too long to build it. It's just the regulatory burdens are too long and the cost 
of rent and housing is so extreme. So that is it in essence. And here's what this report doesn't entail. Yes. Can these people not afford housing? Yes, they can't. Yes, are we making it easy by giving them free stuff and not rousing them out of Skid Row or wherever they live? Yes, we're doing all of that. But it's all of the other taxes and anti-business regulations that the state and the, and the city of LA and the county of LA impose upon its citizens that drive up the cost of living. So it's not just the cost of housing, it's the fact that we have our gas prices are some of the highest in the nation because we have so many freaking taxes so that just to live your cost of food, your cost to buy groceries because we, if you want a bag, you have to pay a tax to use a bag. Like all of these things add up and they're, they hurt the poorest among us. The people that can least afford it. These are people who are on the verge of being homeless. That is the problem. And then you compound it with out of Sacramento that they, instead of building more prisons, they want to decriminalize crime because they don't think people should be in jail. And so what do they do? They do something called early prisoner release, AB 109, a few years ago. And so you're letting out all these prisoners that these convicts that a lot of them are recidivate and reoffend, which about 78% of them do, but let's assume they're not even doing it. It's hard to get a job if you're an ex-con, never mind a job that pays $47 an hour. So what do they do? They go be homeless and then do what they know how to do, which is steal things. It is this terrible self-fulfilling cycle that our legislators and quite frankly, the Democrats, because this is a one-party uh, one party. Uh, rule state as well as LA city, which is almost 100% run by Democrats. It is their fault. I don't know that we can eradicate homelessness, but we could certainly dramatically reduce it. And that's the bottom line is it's not about free stuff. It's not about more taxes. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. We need to take, it requires a state and local, it requires a local city approach, a county approach and the state to come in and say, you know what we have to do? Maybe we need to ease off on businesses, on all the requirements and expenses it is to run a small business so that maybe that business can can either keep more of their income or charge their consumers less. And if they're charging the consumers less, it costs the cost of living is lower. It all adds up in the aggregate. And what you're seeing essentially is the effect of liberal policies gone run amok in a state that has the best best weather, great population, so many entrepreneurs, so many job creators, yet we're being strangled by leg- uh, by regulation and poor government policies. And it has reached a full-blown crisis. It's out of control, and I don't see it getting any better because you're seeing the Democrats' solutions to this is just throw more money at it, and that will not solve the problem. It's pretty, it's pretty devastating. I'm not op- optimistic unless, well, there's, there's really no unless. <laughs> I don't think they're, they're ever going to wake up. What's, what's going to happen is, and, and we're already, we've been seeing it for years, but California is just going to be exporting people to red states, states that are Republican controlled, where cost of living is lower, 
housing housing costs are dramatically lower. Um, that's what's going to happen because young families cannot afford to resign the state any longer. That's just the nature of it. Well, that's been this night's episode of the Thomas Guide. I hope you enjoyed uh, my political uh, takes as well as rants. Um, we're going to continue to watch the the presidential race and get into, of course, I want to talk uh, Bob Mueller and the impact of impeachment. We're continuing to watch that. And I cannot wait to get to debate season because that's going to be a ton of fun. Thank you so much for listening to my show, The Thomas Guide. Please uh, follow me on Twitter at The Thomas Guide. Uh, you can send me a note on Facebook on my official Facebook page called John Thomas Political Strategist. We're going to be relaunching a slick new website where all of this, you can sign up for email updates and the whole thing. Please follow my uh, my podcast. You can find us obviously on iTunes or any popular format and spread the word. If you like what you're hearing, if you think this is different than other podcasts, please share this with a friend. We're trying to grow the show and the best way to do it is by word of mouth. Thanks so much again for listening to this episode of The Thomas Guide.